We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Man with Bogart's Face on October 3rd, 1980. It was written by Andrew J. Fennedy, or Fennady, based on his own novel, directed by Robert Day and released by 20th Century Fox. Andrew J. Fennady, or Fennedy, had been a writer and producer of television and film for 30 years when he sat down to write his first novel, The Man with Bogart's Face. He wrote it longhand in 23 days, and in June of 1976, it was announced that his novel would be published the following January and a film adaptation would soon follow. Wait a it, minute. Yeah. This started with a novel? Yes. Isn't I, that crazy? I... I was certain it started with some sort of casting director saying, we got to write a movie around this guy. He mm-hmm. wasn't even the first guy that they cast in that part. What? Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. His original intent was to produce it as a radio play, but he saw the commercial potential. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> he, he wanted it to just be a person doing an impression of Bogart's voice for a yeah, radio play. Yeah, I get it. But the whole point is that he looks like Bogart and he wanted to do it as a radio play. Yeah, it, it would be the characters would be reacting to him as though he looked like Bogart. I uh, keep commenting on it. Which actually I think would would be kind of funny. Like it reminds yeah. me of the sort of things that they do on um, Prairie Home Companion. Sure. You know, where yeah. you're just like, oh, you really look like. That's incredible. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the book was popular enough to warrant a sequel, The Secret of Sam Marlowe, The Further Adventures of the Man with Bogart's Face, though no additional films were produced. Fennedy, or Fennady, took the, f- I'm just going to say one from now on, <laughs> Fennady, because that's the, that's the one I think is less likely to be correct. Wait, I was going to say, I think it's the other one. Okay. <laughs> Fennedy took the film rights to Melvin Simon, the shopping mall magnate who independently financed The Stuntman and My Bodyguard earlier this year. Simon offered him $4 million, but Fennedy returned 400000 insisting it was more than he needed. So he wow. took 3.6 to make the movie. Star Robert Satchi had made appearances as Bogart over a decade prior in various commercials, a four-year tour of a one-man show called Bogey's Back, <laughs> and even a Broadway production of Play It Again Sam based on the Woody Allen film. Hmm. Amazingly, another actor had basically been cast in the film before Satchi even auditioned, but they obviously had to drop their Bogart for this guy, especially when he started talking. Yeah, he, he's he got it down. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was impressed going into this. I was like, okay, it's going to be somebody that kind of looks like Bogart. Maybe could... I, 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 I actually assumed that it wasn't going to be an actor like they just happened to find a guy that looked like him and they were going to try to get him to act and i was really worried going yeah. into this film <laughs> well i i think um he's affecting his voice but the the face is just his face oh and for sure for sure like but him. but i didn't realize how practiced he'd be at yes. it i kind of figured that it was a guy that wasn't going that that they would have had to have trained to be good at this right. but it turns out he's for four years was on stage in front of people doing a one-man show as bogart so yeah. he had plenty of practice uh, for a brief period during production, the title was changed to Sam Marlowe Private Eye, with an E at the end of Marlowe. Then, to avoid legal issues with the Chandler estate, the E was dropped, 
and eventually, because the title didn't make sense anymore, it reverted back to the title of the book. Overseas, it retained the title of Sam Marlowe, Private Detective. This was the last film of actor George Raft. Our lead character's name is Sam Marlowe, which is obviously an amalgamation of Mr. Bogart's two most famous detective characters, the Maltese Falcons, Sam Spade, and the Big Sleep's Philip Marlowe. This film won the first ever Razzie Award for Worst Song. Yeah, I don't know about that. It was rough. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not as bad as the other half of Me as You from The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. I, I agree yeah. with that statement. I, I think just, it felt super corny in the movie. I or, think, I mean, the, the song itself is fine, but it's like a opening to a television show when you're narrating yeah. mm-hmm. what is about to happen. <laughs> yeah, or what he's doing. You're like, take the stairs up to his place. That's uh, it's what he's doing. Yeah. He's taking oh, the stairs wow, to his place. Incredible. It reminds me of that Randy Newman song. Yeah, red-headed lady. Yeah. Reach a boring <laughs> apple. I feel like... Um, um, that's more the editor's fault than the song's fault because clearly the song was written first, written and produced first. D- was it clearly, or maybe I he wrote so. it according to what was And I was think the editor was the like, cut. "Well, okay, so upstairs up to his place. Okay, so I got to cut the stairs in here." And it's like, "No, you don't. Don't do that." <laughs> we open in what looks like a home where a doctor is unwrapping bandages from our hero Sam's head, Twilight Zone style. I I don't think this is the doctor's office because. I mean, there's a lot of light light fixtures that make it look like an operating room, mm-hmm. but the rest of the house looks like just a home. Yeah, with door frames and like an old school television. Yeah, but there's like a nurse there too. Right? Was there? I think so. I think it's just him and the doctor. That was just him and the doctor. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. It's like very Joker esque. Like, yeah. Mirror. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's telling Sam that there is no direct rule against this kind of surgery, and that he even checked with the board in advance. Medically, ethically, there was no reason not to comply. Your face, your money. He finishes unwrapping and hands Sam a mirror, which he uses to compare his new face to the face of Bogart on a nearby television, and we get our first glimpse of Robert Satchi. He's a dead ringer for Bogart, especially when he squints, which he does a lot of over mm-hmm. the course of the film. I, 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 I'm glad they toned it down later on, but his early excessively twitching, uh, twitching. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's not just going to keep doing this all the time. Yeah, because it's a thing that Bogart did, but he didn't do it in literally every shot. Yeah. You know, again, I think we want to blame the editor for this because I, I noticed throughout the film they did cutbacks to him when he was having conversations where he wasn't even saying any dialogue just to and show he the twitch. just had a twitch. So the they were playing it up for sure in yeah. the edit. Come to find out, he's got the voice down, too. Swell. We launch into the Razzie Award-winning theme song to the film. See the man with Bogart's face. He's the one who will take your case. He's a special kind of guy. And on him you can rely. We see Sam driving a 40s-accurate car through Beverly Hills, thoroughly overdue for a smog check. Another rich guy tries several times to swerve around him on the wrong side of the road to get out of the smog, but when he sees who's driving, he does a double take and crashes his car. I remember you asking at some point in the film what year it was supposed to take place yeah. because it's a little confusing. Um, but we decided it was the 80s. It's supposed to be the 80s because when you look at the other cars on the road, you can right. tell that it's present day. But and also his secretary is obsessed with Burt Reynolds. That's true. That's true. But there were so many things in this film that felt very retro. Yeah. And, and, and definitely on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, it, and, it, and at first I was like, so the gag is going to be that he's the one stuck in the past, but a lot of his clientele are, are also, also very old-fashioned. <laughs> yes. I was like, I kind of am, am happy about this. Yeah, me too, yeah. 
Uh, we see Sam coming out of the Los Angeles City Hall building, probably having just gotten his private eye license. He buys a gun from a gun store, just as the music mentions his gun, and the theme gets really literal here as he opens the front door, and the song goes, See the man with Bogart's face. Take the stairs up to his place, just as he starts up the stairs. He's the man with Bogart's face. Take the stairs up to his place. For 200 and expenses, he will take all kinds of chances. Danger, dames, and lots of dough. He gets in the office door, and the frosted glass reads, Sam Marlowe, Private Eye, I Don't Sleep. His office is plastered with paintings and posters of actors and actresses from Bogart films. From here forward, the entire movie is a fairly straightforward crime noir set in quote-unquote present day, led by a guy who, by design, looks identical to Bogart, but we never delve into what he did before this, or what mental illness <laughs> caused this need to resemble Bogart yeah. exactly. I was concerned that, like what you said, Jesse, before was they found a guy who looked like him and they just wrote a movie about it. They were yeah. like, you're an actor now, be yeah. in this. Yeah. 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 Um, and I was like, I don't get what the gimmick's going to be. But I came to really like it. Yeah. Like this, this just <laughs> That it's not silly... relevant that he looks like Bogart for the most part. Yeah. And, and that we don't know who this guy is. Yeah. <laughs> we literally don't know anything about this guy at all. And, and well, that's actually kind of cool. I, I, yeah. it, it adds to this whole kind of mystery and, and, we, that, we and also, that he's so confident yes in, in in his choices that he doesn't address it it's just a it's just a fact of life with him and, yeah and he dismisses it whenever it's brought up yeah people try and pick on him about it and he just like runs over whatever they're saying yeah i was really certain going into this film knowing the little bits that i did that this was going to be some sort of funny parody and it's not and it's all. not a parody and it's so that's super confusing because i kept waiting for the the jokes related to you know him being a private eye or him looking like this and there just weren't jokes yeah but but not only does is he obsessed with bogart in particular but obviously he has the filmography memorized and he seems to have this encyclopedic knowledge of film noir in general that he brings up constantly whenever but apparently that's sufficient enough to be a private eye because he does a fine job yeah <laughs> He starts drinking at his desk and slipping into the standard noir voiceover. The office was just about ready for the private eye business. And so was I. When a hand knocks on the armrest of his chair, waking him up, he pulls a gun on what looks like a blonde Jessica Rabbit, but more ditzy. She's here about the ad for a secretary. He walks around her and gives her a good look before hiring her, referring to her repeatedly as Duchess, which is what we'll know her as throughout the film. It is that I I didn't do my research. I apologize. I was assuming that Duchess would either be the name of some Marilyn Monroe character in in some film or be a parody of a name of a Ma- Marilyn know. character. Well, cuz she said that she's going to go out with a musician. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, are they making a some like a hot reference?" Oh, maybe. Because it's all things that she doesn't want to date musicians. Well, and she's she's supposed to be some sort of Marilyn lookalike, I assume. Yes. Yeah. She asks if it's hot in that trench coat, a question he'll get a lot in the next 90 minutes, and he says, I don't wear underwear. Neither do I. I noticed that. You know, you remind me of someone. Yeah? Who? I can't quite place it. The voiceover tells us that she was built like Marilyn Monroe, and in our cast notes we'll cover that she's actually played Monroe multiple times. He also says that she made as much sense as Gracie Allen. 
a reference to the famous comedian, wife and comedy partner of George Burns, the star of our next film. Out Sam's window, we can see his offices on Larchmont in Hollywood. One day, Sam is surprised by a huge woman carrying a yippy purse dog at his desk. He claims never to have seen her, but we will come to learn that in addition to being a prospective client, she is also his landlady. She asks him to address her as mother. He offers her a sip from the office bottle, and she refuses. I don't drink. Neither should you. Is this business or what? It ain't all what. In that case, I get 200 a day plus expenses. Nikki's my boyfriend. Disappeared. Here's a picture of us. In the Polaroid, Mother is like three feet taller than her boyfriend, Nikki. They'll reach a deal that Mother will pay him in three months free rent in exchange for the safe return of her Nikki. She says when he disappeared, he didn't take anything from the home they share. And Sam advises her not to wash anything because he intends to search it for clues. I love this mother character. She's great. She's super funny. She She's just wonderful throughout the whole film because she's so she's so huge like she's just she, yeah she fills the room in every shot and every shot's like an up angle of her yeah which, which just On makes purpose. her more imposing and then the nikki guy but, is obviously cast because he was shorter too yeah but she's also like deeply caring for this guy like she yeah. cares a lot like it's not there's no malice here she's not evil or mean she's just it's such a it's such a unique character i think i would say that about almost every character in this movie yeah. I, I feel like they did a really good job writing these people because duchess could have just been a caricature of a secretary yeah. but she has really funny moments and they have great conversations and i mean there's people we'll get to later too that i feel like this character in any other movie would have been flat as a pancake and they just build everybody up really well um but yeah she's she's wonderful the landlady character and, and i love every time they have an encounter he just goes yes mother yes <laughs> yeah and he's also like a foot and a half shorter than her mm-hmm. so when they're like passing each other in the hall she has a very intimidating presence she says Nikki handles the laundry anyway, so she's not worried about not having to do it. His office phone rings, and a distressed woman asks him to meet her at the center section of the Hollywood Bowl to discuss a case. The last time we were here, I think, was in Xanadu, <laughs> right before the animated sequence. <laughs> but he says, what's playing? Nothing. Why don't you save your tickets for something that you want to see? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. She bought tickets to just an empty Hollywood Bowl. After he hangs up, the voiceover guesses what she might look like and then starts blathering on specific damsels in distress from Bogey's filmography. She sounded desperate and lovely. Probably a redhead. Dan Andrews was swell in Laura. But what if Bogart had played Lieutenant McPherson? He drives to the bowl and brings a Derringer and a bag of unshelled peanuts. I feel like the label unshelled could be interpreted to mean both with a shell and without a shell. Yeah. But these have shells. <laughs> He drops the shells along the rows of the concert venue as he approaches this new customer, and she introduces herself as Elsa Borscht. She also says that her father, a widower and retired prop man, has been pursued lately by several strange men. He seems unstable at this point. Bogart asks if any of the men bothering her father look like the guy creeping up on them now. The acoustics of the bowl, along with the trail of peanut shells, is causing a henchman to give himself away. These men who've been following him are... I wonder if one of them looks anything like the fellow who's been creeping up the aisle towards us. What? He's been crawling on my peanut shells for the last few minutes. Why he didn't choose a different, less peanut-littered row to sneak <laughs> down, who knows? I was thinking that. <laughs> um, it is funny, too, though, I, th- I think I skipped over it here, that uh, her father's name is, what, Horst Borscht? Horst Borscht. Horst Borscht. Yeah, which I actually know somebody named Horst, and I did not believe it was a real name until this movie. That's <laughs> well, there's also an actor, Horst Buckholtz. Oh, okay. What has he done? 
Uh, he was like in the Magnificent Seven, the original Magnificent Seven. Uh, when I was looking through the the credits, the IMDb credits for this movie, one of the actresses has a husband named Horst. I put it in the notes when we get there. I was like, oh, that's that's a crazy coincidence. But also, the prop guy for this movie, what do you want to guess his name is? Horst. Horst. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a blatant reference to Horst, the prop guy for this actual movie, that this character who also happens to be a prop man was named Horst. Sam orders the guy to stand at gunpoint, and lucky for him, he's already wearing a mask. The two of them have guns on each other when a second bad guy comes up from behind Sam. Such a lot of guns. Yeah, put yours down in the seat. You wouldn't want the lady to get hurt. I wouldn't want anybody to get hurt. Outside. The first masked man moves to frisk Sam when Sam lays him out with a quick punch and spins around to shoot at the other guy with the Derringer in his pocket. <laughs> So he's shooting through the through his pocket and tearing a hole in his jacket. The henchmen disappear and he agrees to take the girl's case. He drives her home and along the way he's giving her basically a Starline tour about shooting locations from double indemnity when he's driving past her father's home. <laughs> you just passed our house. I know. Why? It's best not to park in front of the place you're going to. A car from across the street honks a horn as they approach the house and a gunshot rings out from inside. They head in seconds late to prevent the assassination of her father. Sam takes out the gunman, and her father manages to blurt out a German word before dying. Schlack. What did he say? I'm not really sure, but I think he said Ein Schlack. She seems less upset than she should be about her dad's murder. No. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, oh, darn it. Oh, shoot. Dad died. Yeah. Sam tells her to make some coffee while he phones the police. Somehow, the press catches wind of what happened, and by the time the police are there, a group of reporters has Sam circled. This part is a little bit of a comedy moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the questions they're asking are completely unrelated to the case. Were you ever in the movies? Are you related to anyone who was in the movies? Have you got an agent? What's your favorite song? Do you believe in ghosts? Are you married? Have you ever seen a movie called Casablanca? <laughs> That's the best question. I really like Do You Believe in Ghosts, though, because it's the furthest off topic, but that someone here asked him if he's ever seen Casablanca. Well, I think there's that he is the ghost of Bogart is yeah. what they're implying. But I, I, these are funny lines of questioning, but it doesn't push the movie at all into parody. Right. Like, it's just a humorous moment in the movie itself. Yeah. And, and I think it's really one of the last times like that that it gets this silly yeah yeah the second reporter there by the way was a rare feature film appearance by robert osborne but we'll come back to that you know it's funny because uh when you're talking earlier about uh his encyclopedic film knowledge and i was like why don't you just get robert osborne and, and make him up to look like humphrey bogart maybe they had him on set specifically so that he could inform him of stuff oh and then he played a part in the movie oh that's probably true <laughs> i don't know if that's true but it, he would ma- be a good make, technical let's make advisor up knowledge and yeah. just distribute it add that to it. Uh, imdb trivia guys <laughs> no, well, don't it, do that yeah <laughs> we just made that up yeah well it's like Fake when news. when ricky J is always like a magic consultant for right. a movie he's always like usually in it as well at some he's point so great on deadwood yeah he's great he's he great should. on everything well, i really liked him as the bond uh the bond villain henchman guy mm-hmm. um he's super funny on that captain amazing's agent (laughs) yeah someone asks if he was scared when the bad guy had a gun on him and sam says no because mine was bigger 
Sam hands over the guns he collected from the Hollywood Bowl man, and the police ask him to leave this case to the professionals. He sleeps in the death chair for the night, the the, the <laughs> chair that her father died in. He sleeps in that chair for the night. And in the morning, when he's on his way back into the office, mother hassles him for information on her missing Nikki. Duchess hands him the newspaper with the story on the bad guy he killed, and she notices that he has a new trench coat. Yeah, the old one was full of bullet holes and powder burns. She asks if she can put up pictures of her favorite movie star, and he agrees when he thinks she means Burt Lancaster not reynolds there's a woman in his office and she's made up to resemble the actress gene tierney from laura but with a few minor differences which sam enumerates in voiceover including some racist ones she didn't look exactly like gene tierney close close enough eyes a little chinese red red lips with teeth a little too large and long lovely legs she hasn't actually opened her mouth yet, so <laughs> I'm not sure how he already clocked her chompers as being oversized. She introduces herself as Gina Anastas, daughter of a Greek shipping tycoon, Commodore Anastas. Before she can even explain why she's here, he asks if she's seen Nikki and flashes the Polaroid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess this is how you would it's have to yeah. solve your mystery is you just show the picture to everybody you encounter. Ever seen this fella before? He's the one on the left. <laughs> <laughs> i just love that he had to uh, indicate like just in case you're confused about which one i'm talking about poking more fun at mother's largeness she hasn't seen him she's here about collecting some lewd photographs from someone holding them as blackmail pd kane at kane's club has the pictures and he wants ten thousand dollars in exchange for them sam agrees to accompany her for the payoff the doorman says that she's expected but sam isn't and will have to wait outside the office the girl heads in and then Sam knocks out the bodyguard to follow her. Inside, Kane seems impressed with Sam's moxie. Sam tells Gina to verify that the pictures are in the envelope they gave her, before warning Kane and his goon friend never to try this again, or they'll risk him coming back to finish them off. She confirms they are the pictures she expected, and he tears the envelope in half and tosses it back on the guy's yeah, desk for some reason. That seems like a bad move. Mm -hmm. It's very easy <laughs> to just tape these back together if they were going to do something with them. But I guess it doesn't matter because they have they made those pictures from some negatives, yeah, they, which they didn't obviously give them. Yeah. yeah, and who knows how many copies they have already. While Sam speaks to the tough guys, Gina cuddles up to him, smiling, until he spins around and cracks her with a right hook. <laughs> and then he knocks out the other two also. And we cut to a few minutes later, and he's walking her down the sidewalk, and she says, Why did you hit me? I'll explain later. I think in that scene they do show him taking the ten grand back. Yes, he mm -hmm. does do that. Yeah. Now the pictures are destroyed and he took the money back and he walks her to the car. Suddenly he gets hit with a blackjack and he spins around unconscious. He wakes up on a couch in Commodore Anastasis study, which to me looked almost exactly like the room where Fletch and Alan Stanwyck have their final confrontation. So I checked and it is. <laughs> this is the library of the Beverly House, which is currently for sale. For a totally reasonable one hundred and thirty-five million dollars at the moment, if I you're love, looking for I love a last-minute gift idea, <laughs> a last-minute gift idea. I love that we got to go to the real estate uh, site to confirm this. <laughs> yeah, like let's see the pictures inside this place. It is ridiculous. Yeah. so check it out if it's still for sale. Which, in this economy, I imagine it'll it be for sale for a while. It's been there for like a half a year. Yeah, it's also probably most famous as the mansion from The Godfather, uh, but it's also in The Jerk. 
the bodyguard, and many others. It's been in uh, several other. It's in other scenes in this movie. Right. They use some of the exteriors too. But here, it seems to be playing a room on a boat, which it is clearly not a room on a boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not totally sure that they're on a boat. Yeah. But he makes some comment as he's waking up like, I've been on boats before, but never piped a board like this. You're not on a boat. There's one of those, like, uh, speed dial things. Costa's going to hate me for this. Whatever whatever the <laughs> thing is where, you, you know, like the one on the Titanic yeah, where it's like a full the, stop. It's, or... it's, it's called a telegraph. Okay, there you go. It's one of those in there. there you, go. <laughs> you throw that forward and then the boat goes into drive. Well, you're signaling the engine room, <laughs> uh, and the engine room has a similar thing that goes ring ring to, to indicate what uh, what you've set it to, and then the engine yeah. room will will we'll make the adjustments. It. So it's almost like that you're telegraphing the engine room. <laughs> the intentions of the ship, the ship's intentions, not the captain's. The ship's mm-hmm. it has its own intentions. It's death ship. <laughs> <laughs> this is the commodore's office, and he is apologizing for the inconvenience. They thought Sam was kidnapping their daughter, and ask what business she had with them. Sam confirms with Gina that it's okay to tell him, and when he can tell from her face that it isn't okay, he makes up a story about an old heroin-addicted school friend of Gina's who may or may not have been a dancer at Kane's Club. Just salacious enough to seem like something she didn't want her dad to know, but it still takes the focus off of her. The Commodore goes to show Sam his collection of rare artifacts, but Sam doesn't seem to give a shit about them. It's one of Isabella's diamond rings. It's Napoleon's oh, My watch. father's mustache. <laughs> what? He doesn't give a shit. Commodore decides to confide in Sam that he is going blind, and soon these artifacts will be worthless to him. This doesn't really pay off much. Uh, I don't know why this is in the story at all. It's a sense of urgency to get the artifact that he's after, I think. Sure. But we don't know that he's after it yet because it hasn't been. It won't be introduced until the next. Right, but either way, there's another character in this movie who isn't going blind, who seems just as urgent to get them. I don't yeah, know why he fair. had to be going blind. He asks for directions off the boat, which this probably isn't. Uh, in fact, it is not. We know, but uh, it looks nothing like a boat. He also has a Columbo moment on the way out of the room. Oh, uh, one more thing. Sam returns to smash a vase on the Commodore's assistant's head for knocking him out earlier. Gina pays him a grand for his efforts, and she gives him a kiss. Back at his office, Duchess relays a message from Elsa. She also says that an underwear company called, asking about an endorsement. Oh, and an underwear company called? They want to know if you'll endorse their staff. I don't wear underwear. I told them that. What did they say? They wanted to know how I knew. What'd you say? I can't remember. Now maybe it'll come to you. Maybe. Duchess tells Sam that he has a very perfumey guest. She got a name? I think he said it was Mr. Gazelle. I'll show him in. <laughs> Turns out it's actually Zebra. Mr. Zebra, played by Herbert Lom, right. is, I think, supposed to be a very, like, Bogart, like, uh, the Commodore is supposed to be, like, Sidney Greenstreet. Right. And this guy's supposed to be, like, a very Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre, yeah. For uh, sure. uh, kind of character. Uh, who are frequent Bogart actors. Right. Like, these aren't them, but they're, they're playing, those, playing parts. those parts. Yeah. Zebra is here to tell Sam about some missing artifacts called the Eyes of Alexander. They are more than 2,000 years old, 2,300, I think he says, and carved from huge sapphire rocks, but Zebra expects Sam to locate them and just hand them over for a measly $25,000. Uh, do you remember another giant eye sapphire the eye of osiris (laughs) that alexander the great had yeah (laughs) from 
Eye of Osiris, MacGyver, season six, episode four. Okay. I have no, no idea. No wonder I don't remember this. <laughs> but I immediately was thinking about that. <laughs> Is this from 1980? What are they talking uh, about? Especially because uh, of the uh, wolf is in it. Yeah. Um, uh, Kai it? Wolf. Kai Wolf. Yeah. And there's a character named Wolf in this. Oh, that's right. And he, they were both Nazis. <laughs> so it's like, oh my God, all the connections <laughs> I, I, to MacGyver. I'm not a surprise to have a wolf character be the Nazi. <laughs> Although Wolf is his actual name, <laughs> not, the, not the character's name. Uh, Von Lear. Von Lear, there you go. Because he was uh, Christopher Neem's brother or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or cousin. A tiny sapphire by itself with no historical significance is worth a shit ton more than $25,000. Now consider there are two. They are both huge, and they belong to the one-time ruler of the known world. Zebra leaves a business card with Sam, but nothing else. Not a single clue as to where they were last seen, where they might be. Just, hey, here's the thing that existed, and here's how ludicrously little I would pay you for these items. But he's, like, first of all, he's just started in this job. He's right. not, He's not, like, some, you know, amazing detective that has a long history of, you know, finding artifacts or something. But he's not an archaeologist. This right. is an Indiana Jones. I don't know why anybody would come to him. They explain a little bit later. Yeah. Why well, they approached him for this. Right. I get I get that. But it should bother him now it, is what you're that's, saying. That is what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that why it would be weird to me that somebody came to me as a private eye and sent me out treasure hunting. Yeah. If someone comes in and they say... I think my husband's cheating on me. I haven't seen him in two days. That's one thing. And if you come in, you're like, hey, I haven't seen these rocks in like 2,300 years. <laughs> Can you look into that? And it's like, sure. You got any more information? Nope. <laughs> Can you find Here's the, my card. Can you find the Holy Grail, the Lands of Longinus? If you, you find know? anything that's worth like billions of dollars, I'll give you shit for it. <laughs> Best I can do is $25,000. That's all I got. That's all I got on me. Why does it have to be on you? I wanted Sam to just eat this card after the guy walks out, but that's not what happened. (laughs) Outside Elsa's place, a cop stops Sam to interrogate him a bit. The cop says that he did some digging into Sam's past and asks how the wound is doing. Is he talking about the recovery from facial reconstructive surgery? Or is this some injury he incurred in the line of duty somewhere? We'll never know because it never comes back up. But he just says, what wound? You know what I'm talking about. You know something, Seamus? As screwy as it sounds, I kind of like you. Yeah? I better get going before this turns into something disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it, it, like, it just feels like something Bogart would have said in these kind of movies. Well, yeah, all, all the dialogue is... It, it reminded me a lot of Brick. Yeah. Uh, it's just... It's very punchy, fun dialogue, but it's believable for these people who are speaking the lines. Yes, absolutely. Over dinner, Elsa gives Sam a letter she got in the mail from her father. It was addressed to him, and it has a very cryptic poem inside. Under the tramp of marching feet, under the beat of daring drum, follow the tree beneath the post, age will show the way to go, to a stone, a stone, high or low. Sam tells her it's harder to unscramble than the Musgrave ritual, which is an old Sherlock Holmes film. Back in his office, he tries to puzzle out the letter when he notices men watching his offices from across the street. He hears a loud noise come from upstairs, and he moves to investigate. It's Nikki, the landlady's missing paramour, and he tells Sam that he just needs some time to recuperate because she loves him so aggressively. Sam agrees not to turn him in for a few days. Gina shows up to Sam's office again, 
and they pop out for a drink. Before they go, he tells her about the letter from Horst Borscht, and she seems intrigued. When they leave, a car follows them. On their way to Musso Franks, they take a detour into the Hollywood Wax Museum. Look, Sam, it's the Wax Museum. I've driven by it a hundred times and never gone in. Have you? Not since this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Sam doesn't have to pay because he's a friend of Spoonie Singh who runs the place. Moving through the museum, Gina is startled when Sam strikes up a conversation with Spoonie, who she thought was a statue. He reminds them to check out the latest attraction, a Hall of Mirrors. And thanks, Sam, for contributing a trench coat for his exhibit. So is this the trench coat that got shot? Yes. Okay, yeah. I didn't know if we confirmed that or if that was just my well, suspicion. It has the same burn hole in it. Does it? Yeah. Okay, I don't remember seeing the burn hole. Because he's sticking the gun through it now. The pose of the statue is that it's sticking oh, the gun through okay. the burn hole in the jacket. Okay. Spoonie tosses a smoke bomb on the floor and disappears in a puff. Sam and Gina continue through the exhibit and they come to this Bogart statue and it's wearing the trench coat that he had at the Hollywood Bowl with the bullet hole from the encounter and it's the Dillinger sticking out and everything. Pretty sure that when we see the face of this statue here is just Robert Satchi holding very still. Mm. <laughs> but then the rest of it, like, we cut away and then we cut back to the bottom half of the statue and it's just any mannequin wearing the clothes. <laughs> it's, it's like the... the uh james bond mannequin and it's a lot like gun where it's just it's clearly just people standing very not still at all like slowly (laughs) rocking back and forth but you park them right outside a hall of mirrors Mm -hmm. exactly like in man with a golden gun they walk around this house of mirrors for a while and they split up when suddenly the reflections of masked gunmen join them several mirrors are shattered and the resulting shootout and gina races out of the maze Spoonie comes back and begs them to stop because mirrors are expensive. Those mirrors cost me a fortune! (laughs) Funny moment here where Sam turns around intending to leave the maze and crashes head on into his reflection. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I was not expecting this moment, but it made me laugh so hard that <laughs> he just crashes into the mirror. Son of a bitch! Um, they and they must have been filming some of these behind like a a one way mirror. Oh right, those, yeah. Like, because like, how is the camera not in the shot? I yeah. know. I was looking for it. They did a really good job. Yeah, it's all. I'm, I'm always confused by these scenes that are shot in houses of mirrors. Mm-hmm. How many houses of mirrors have we had this year? This year, I don't know. But there's a MacGyver episode where you see like six macgyvers in the same shot and the guy lines up to shoot one of them and they all like disappear and then come around different corners and i'm like how how are they shooting this what is this eventually sam gets the upper hand on the gunman and he tells spoonie to call the cops about this dead guy in his maze the shootout in the hall of mirrors was a tribute to the scene at the end of the lady from shanghai not man with the golden gun as i suspected i didn't suspect that it was a reference to that because obviously he's not referencing bond anywhere else yes The cops ask why he always has to kill these guys. Well, don't you ever just wound anybody? Yeah. I nicked that son of a bitch last night, and look what happened. He got mad. (laughs) In his home that night, Sam tucks Horst's letter into a bedpost. When Gina knocks at the door, she brings in a bottle of Grand Marnier to Sam's room because they missed their drink earlier. They go to bed together, and the floor of his room is littered with old-school Hollywood books. He lists off a group of famous lovers yeah. that this evening was like and then he ends with Sodom and Gomorrah yeah <laughs> I was like ooh it's got a little steam here than I yeah. expected <laughs> and there's also like 
some uh, like side boob in this next part that I was not expecting because this seems like it was just going to be a very tame like comedy noir thing. But when she leans up in bed the next day, she's completely naked when he pulls her back into the bed. Mm-hmm. At his office the next day, Duchess delivers a letter inviting him to the Ambassador Hotel swimming pool. And it's signed Mustafer Hakim. Sam is met at the pool by Cynthia, who leads him to Hakim. It looks like the actress is actually walking him across the Fox lot, which makes sense because in 1979, Melvin Simon signed a deal with Fox to distribute all of his acquisitions with a 50% stake in each film, which is why this was distributed by Fox. I had a job interview in the building in the background here to work an editorial on, I think, Diary of a Wimpy Kid or something <laughs> like that. Cynthia lets Sam into the room, which is all blue. Every object is a different shade of blue, and the guy he's here to meet, Hakim, is also wearing all blue. Hakim invites his Nazi assistant, General Zindernuff, into the room to supervise the conversation, I guess. I don't really know why he's here. They ask Sam if he's ever heard of the Eyes of Alexander, and Sam responds in the affirmative. Hakim talks Sam through the history of the Eyes. They were to be the two most perfectly matched sapphires in the world. They took 10 years to find, and the finished statue was supposedly the last thing Alexander saw on his deathbed in 334 BC. Hakim says his assistant, the general, knows something of the history of the statue. He spent some time in Greece in World War II and had an opportunity to steal and hide the bust. I'll wager he was wearing gray with a crooked cross on his armband. Wolfie, the general, destroyed the bust but hid the eyes. I feel like the bust would be worth a lot of money too. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's easier to hide just yeah. the eyes. Mm-hmm. Want to smuggle them back to wherever you're going. Yeah. Horst Borscht is the nephew of Wolfie and was given the eyes for safekeeping. They smuggled the sapphires out of Greece in a prop box because, as we said before, Horst was a prop man in Hollywood. Hakim offers Sam $100,000 to recover the eyes, still a laughable underbid. Sam passes Zebra on his way out of the room and realizes that Zebra was trying to make $75,000 off of him because he was probably offered 100000 to find them and mm-hmm. he was willing to pay twenty-five. Sam gets a call back at his office from a gruff voice offering him the location of the Sapphires. He is instructed to meet someone at the garage in the Vanity Fair building, but when he gets there, he's knocked unconscious. When he wakes up, he checks his pockets for the cryptic letter from Horst Borscht, but it's gone. But didn't he tuck it into his bed knob days ago? Yeah, I don't know why he had brought it with him. I don't know why they would show him doing that if they wanted it to seem like it was in his pocket this whole time. Back in the office, we find Zebra again waiting. He confesses that he's an opportunist who was hoping to play Sam, the Commodore, and Hakeem against each other. He admits that in jail, he became acquainted with someone who was tracking the eyes. And I think over the course of the story, we find out that Zebra and Wolfie were in jail together. Correct. And And in a relationship together. Correct. When he heard Borscht had hired Sam, he thought maybe Sam knew where the eyes would be. As he leaves, Sam asks why Zebra was in jail, and he basically says it was a crime of passion, to which Sam responds, I hope he was worth it, since we've been subtly hinting at this character's homosexuality throughout the film. And he just kind of waves him off, like, (laughs) with this, like, limp-wristed, like, oh, you... Duchess sends Elsa into Sam's room later in the day. She claims not to have known anything about the Sapphires, and he believes her. They make it back to her dad's place, and it's trashed. Sam catches masked men leaving the house, and they exchange a few shots before the men leave. Later that night, Sam and Elsa have a strange conversation. The movie seems like it's trying not to judge people for being Nazis, which is weird. (laughs) But Elsa insists that her father was a good man, and Sam corrects her. He was a good soldier. 
They're all good soldiers, just doing what they were ordered to do. Sam suggests something that might end all wars in the future. It's an idea that someone last had in the nude bomb uh, by (laughs) suggesting that everyone should fight naked so you couldn't tell who the enemy was. Though in that film, the ambassador for some African nation said, We will know. (laughs) (laughs) Gina picks up Sam to take him to a fancy party on her father's boat. Once again, he's distracted by her beauty and doesn't notice that they're being followed by another car full of bad guys. Looks like this time it's Kane's men, the bodyguard who he knocked out and the guy that was in the office with him when they bought the pictures back. For whatever reason, all of the different hunters for Alexander's eyes are all here at this party together. Sam introduces Gina to everyone and she makes an impression. It seems like every single person is hitting on her. Well, I like I like that she invites him to the party and then he says, let me introduce you to some yeah. of the people here. <laughs> he has to show her who everybody is. Uh, the Commodore offers him $125,000 which is obviously an improvement over the 25 and 100 that he's gotten so far, but Sam talks him up to 150. Hakeem invites Sam and Gina to leave this boat party already, even though they just got here, and come to his party. On a walk back to their car, Sam and Gina are attacked by Kane's men. Sam makes quick work of them and tosses them through a fence into the water, and then they leave for Hakeem's party at the Blue Fez. A genie opens the door, (laughs) or a guy in a genie costume, and Sam jokes, Where's the lamp that comes with you? When he sees them enter, Hakeem orders Cynthia to make room for them. A group of belly dancers take the stage for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's too much belly dancing in this scene. Cynthia looks jealous of the other dancers, and Sam and Gina just look bored or disgusted. Hakeem whispers something in Cynthia's ear, and she resists this order for a moment before taking the stage and belly dancing while stripping for the crowd. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call what she's doing belly dancing. No, not it's, not necessarily. It's super awkward the way she's moving. Yeah. Uh, everyone seems a little grossed out by Hakeem forcing Cynthia to do this against her will, and eventually Sam and Gina decide it's time to leave. Hakeem's Nazi assistant seems to be having a seizure from being over-aroused by this, though. Sam has to punch out the genie to escape the room, and he takes the genie sword and throws it up, stabbing it into the ceiling as they exit. Gina drops him off outside his building, and he gives her a kiss as he leaves. The next morning, Sam moves inside Elsa's place, and they talk over her father's last words. At the door, he's greeted by a friend of Elsa's, who says, Wow, you really do look like Humphrey Bogart. Sam visits with a friend, Mr. Chevalier, at a bookshop, and Chevalier confirms Umschlag means envelope. Sam realizes that he didn't need the letter from Borscht, but the envelope that it came in, which is now sitting on his desk. He runs back to his office, and when he gets there, the envelope is missing, and Duchess admits that she may have thrown it away because she finally tidied up his office. Downstairs, Sam and Duchess chase after the trash truck that already collected from their dumpster. Duchess breaks the heels of her new shoes in the rush. Sam manages to find the envelope in the trash truck. They steam the stamp off of the envelope and find further directions to the sapphires underneath the stamp. Sam tries to call Elsa's house with this new clue, and her friend says she's not there, that she left to see him. Sam calls the police to tell them he's worried for Elsa, and the detective says, Yeah, I'm worried also, because we just found a body matching her description at the Batcave. (laughs) Well, he doesn't say the Batcave. But it's the Batcave. Yes. (laughs) Or as I said, is that the Batman cave? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no. (laughs) It's the Batcave. Um, the batman mobile (laughs) (laughs) that is now what i will call it (laughs) i'm gonna call him batman man (laughs) 
Sam goes to meet them at the Batcave. For whatever reason, Elsa's body was discovered there naked. Sam asks if the police can please keep this murder secret for 24 hours until he can make some progress. Cynthia meets Sam at his office representing Hakeem, offering a guarantee of the highest bid on the eyes, and Sam asks if she'll do anything Hakeem asks. She tells Sam that he doesn't know her whole story. He doesn't know that she changed her name recently after growing up in the ghettos of Poland and being raped by her father on a regular basis. What she has now is technically a much better life. Cynthia leaves in a huff, and suddenly Mr. Zebra is entering again. Because detectives don't actually do any detecting, they just have a constant stream of visitors dumping new information on their desk. Yeah. Zebra keeps eyeballing Duchess from the door to Sam's office until Sam asks, Which of the species do you prefer? Or can't you make up your mind? Why be restricted in the pleasures of life? (laughs) That's probably my favorite (laughs) line in this movie. Zebra suggests they deal with the Commodore, and Sam says he's going on vacation to Catalina. Sam gives Duchess $500 to replace her shoes, and she's very happy about it. There was a moment here that I really like when he gives her the money because she counts it and is just overwhelmed by this because this is so much more money than she has ever seen. Right. It's like a month's pay or more than that for her. Yeah. And so she tries to give him the money back. She's like, shoes don't cost this much. Yeah. The landlady threatens to raise his rent if he doesn't find Nikki soon. Sam calls Gina and asks if her boat is still seaworthy. They head out to Catalina and then take a Jeep to Camp Cactus. It's called Fort Cactus in the film, but in real life it's called Camp Cactus and it looks like they actually shot there, too. I wonder if when they knock the corner of the building over, if they actually destroyed part oh, of the building. I don't know. Building. I mean, they did look pretty abandoned, so I don't yeah. know if it would matter that much. Sam's voiceover muses about how bored anyone stationed here must have been, but it actually sounds like it would have been a pretty sweet gig. Sam confides in Gina that they're here for the Sapphires. Borscht worked on a film called The Divers that shot on the island, though a quick IMDb search turns up surprisingly no feature films by that name. But that, that is where I learned how, that is where I got certified to scuba dive, is right off uh, of... By, uh, by that building, the round building in Catalina? Yeah, right off the casino in Catalina. Yeah. There's a little um, sectioned off area of the beach that like stairs walk right down into the water and I I did um, just snorkeling there at the, at the same squared off yeah. section. Yeah, because um, it keeps the boats out. It's nice. Is that what that is? It's a casino? Yeah, that's what that's what they call it. I don't know if it's actually functions as a casino. I I think it probably did back in its heyday. Yeah, Wrigley owned the whole island. I think. Oh yeah, the chewing gum guy. Yeah, interesting. I only know him by his field. Field of gum. (laughs) If you build it, they will gum. (laughs) (laughs) We see under the stamp was written the words Catalina World War II barracks nozzle of fuel tank the tank that they find is rusted shut but sam hammers it open and gina has to reach in with her small hands because sam's don't fit they find a case with the sapphires and kiss when suddenly they're under fire from a passing car i was for sure terrified that they were just going to drop them back down into the (laughs) oh god yeah and you're just going to hear clink 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 clink. forever somebody must have followed them out here they rush back to their jeep and a car chase ensues Sam pulls the jeep behind an old shack off the road, and they wait for the bad guys to pass them before swinging around and rear-ending them off a cliff. The car explodes on the rocks below. Hold on, Angel. And they head back to Gina's home on Catalina Island. 
which is actually just a living room set with this wide shot of Catalina badly conked into the window frame behind them at like an impossible angle. It's like if her if her apartment in this building was in like the Leaning Tower of Pisa mm-hmm. so that it's looking down on the bay. Sam calls all the interested parties and they take the sapphires out for an auction at sea. Gina asks on the way why he punched her in Kane's office and he says to confuse everybody basically. It's the shoot the hostage strategy I guess. Um, but he, he blames it on a John Wayne movie that he had a poster for in his office. I'm forgetting now what it Is was. Is it Hondo? Hondo, there you go. The Commodore boards Gina's boat with a briefcase full of money, and Sam throws his assistant overboard. Suddenly, an alarm is blaring, and the Turk, Hakim, is inbound. He's riding an elevator down from a helicopter, <laughs> which I've never seen anything like this before in a movie. It, it, it kind of reminded me of um, the volcano helicopter and when time ran out. Oh, <laughs> or sure, not, yeah. the, not the helicopter, the volcano elevator. Yes. Yes. Just as impractical and just as unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> But at least not glass bottom this time. (laughs) It touches down on the deck and he, Cynthia, Wolfie, and Zebra all get out. They all head below deck where the bidding quickly ties up when Commodore and Hakeem reveal that both of their briefcases had exactly a million bucks in them. Sam coaxes them to throw in their personal jewelry and then their watches, cufflinks, and even their clothes. Cynthia is smirking at Hakeem having to embarrass himself like this. Sam stands and spells out his theory on the events of the film. Someone sent the killers after Borscht. When Sam's name showed up in the papers, everyone thought he had a line on the eyes of Alexander, so Commodore sent Gina to his office, and one of the six people on the boat here is responsible for Elsa's death. Sam has narrowed down the possible party to Mr. Zebra, basically. He's, everybody had a motive, but he, he knows it was Mr. Zebra, who quickly receives a slap from boyfriend and former cellmate Wolfie. Sam explains that Zebra is the only one that he mentioned Catalina to, and the henchmen were clearly acting at the direction of Zebra. Zebra says that he can't prove anything in court, especially since he has clear mental problems that required him to undergo surgery to resemble Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> I mean, that's literally the point that he makes here. He's like, no one's going to believe you. You have this crazy face and voice, and it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And in the middle of the argument, the rich men ask, who gets to keep these eyes? And Sam says, well, the police will decide that because they're already on their way. Zebra jumps up to grab Sam's gun and fire it at Sam. And then Sam fires back into Zebra's forehead, killing him instantly. Wolfie grabs the eyes and makes a run for it. And they chase him out to the edge of the boat where he jumps overboard and is quickly attacked by a shark that tears off his left arm, which, by the way, I haven't mentioned until now, his left arm is made of wood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But apparently that was the arm holding the sapphires. Yeah. (laughs) Because he says, wait, did you see which arm? And he says, the arm holding the sapphires. I don't think that was a prosthetic, so I wouldn't hold the sapphires with that arm. Yeah, I was going to say, when I'm trying to escape in a hurry, I don't think that I would secure this thing that I've been searching for for many, many years in the prosthetic hand yeah but i guess he needs to use the other one to swim with i guess but still it seemed crazy i feel like i would have used a pocket or something <laughs> maybe <laughs> if you had time the cops fish the relatively uninjured nazi out of the water right is he okay here because they cut immediately to him on the deck of the po- of the police ship yeah I, I think he's okay i think he's just either exhausted or yeah, he's just laying there in shock he lost I, an arm yeah that's true it's traumatizing those are expensive <laughs> It was mahogany. <laughs> yeah. But then the uh, the cops point to the two naked billionaires standing on the, the deck of Gina's boat. 
and he asks, what the hell's going on over there? Back in Sam's office, Nikki... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Did he have a strategy? Like, why does he... Was he just trying to get them naked? He just wanted to embarrass them. To embarrass them? Because he felt that Cynthia deserved to see Hakeem embarrassed. I didn't know if there was any further like you know scheme that he had by getting them naked i think it was just like look how pathetic these two guys are when i have something they want and it was a way to wrap up cynthia's arc of like she went through this terrible stuff this guy embarrasses her all the time she got to see him embarrassed back in sam's office nikki and mother are being reunited sam says it was a hit and run and that nikki lost his memory and uh he tells he tells her that nikki's groin is injured so she'll have to be gentle with him warm baths tender loving care nurse him back to health she carries nikki out of the office (laughs) she like picks him up cradled in her arms and walks him out of the office sam walks into gina's bedroom somewhere um i don't know where this is supposed to be and she asks why he took the chance on the boat leaving his gun out for zebra and he admits to something surprisingly awful here Mm -hmm. the gun was loaded with blanks so he shot an unarmed man yeah because he agreed with zebra that he would not get convicted in court so he needed to be the judge jury and executioner like he knew the guy didn't have a real gun and he shot him in the forehead i had that note long before this scene when zebra tries to shoot him and nothing happens i was like oh he had it loaded with blanks and then when he shoots him i was like wait a minute (laughs) that's that's fucked up that's still murder (laughs) 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 that wasn't self-defense at all but it looked like self-defense to everyone else on the boat, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't admit that then. Yeah. Well, what you do is, I guess you'd want to at least, I guess, yeah, I guess you'd have to load them all blank just to be sure. I was say, make, make sure the first yeah, one's you don't a want blank. Yeah, to keep firing. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be bad. <laughs> Gina says that her father and Hakeem are out fishing for that shark, and Sam reveals that he palmed the sapphires before Wolfie snagged the case. She tells him to come to bed, and we pan down on the sapphires uh, to end the film here. So that's the end of our movie. I think everybody's storyline gets wrapped up pretty well. There's funny bits. I like it. I like a lot of it. I liked it. Yeah. I think it's it's well written. I think I probably would have gone to see another one of these. Even if the fact that he looks like Bogart is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. yeah. Because it's just a straightforward crime story. But um, it's directed by Robert Day, who directed some episodes of The Avengers in 67. He directed the feature films... The Big Game, Tarzan the Magnificent, and then mostly TV movies after this. The novel was written by Andrew J. Fennedy, who wrote the John Wayne vehicle Chisholm for Folks director Andrew V. McClaglin. Uh, he has a story credit on Terror in the Wax Museum, which likely inspired that scene from this movie. He created and wrote much of the Western television series The Rebel. He has a producing credit on 43 of 48 episodes of the Western series branded bulk of the series thank you <laughs> <laughs> and uh he just passed away about six months ago i guess the, the iron lung finally gave out <laughs> no i don't know uh, what his what his deal was prop master was horst grant too uncommon a name for not to have inspired the name of the prop master in this film though sybil danning who plays cynthia in the film is also married to a horst not a horse <laughs> a horst important <laughs> distinction it was a horst <laughs> robert satchi played sam Marlowe. he plays humphrey bogart on an episode of fantasy island he played humphrey bogart on an episode of sledgehammer he played humphrey bogart in the 1987 feature film funland he plays an engineer in die hard 2 <laughs> <laughs> and he played humphrey bogart dj in blast from the past 
Well, the one with uh, with Encino Man. Oh yeah, yeah. Brandon one of Frazier. one of his three movies about being trapped somewhere for a really long time and then escaping into the real world. Okay, so Encino Man and this and what? Tarzan, trapped on an island in the middle. I guess of the that's jungle. not like George, over- George of the Jungle. That yeah. was him. Yeah, but same thing. But it's not like he's frozen in that one or right. But he's being in- he's being. Uh, introduced to the modern world in all three films. There you go. Yes. All right. Franco Nero played Hakim. He's the original Django from the 1966 film. And then he came back for Django Strikes Again in 87. He played Amerigo Vesepi in Tarantino's Django Unchained. He was Lancelot in Camelot. He plays Esperanza in Die Hard 2 with with Robert Sanchi. He's also Julius in John Wick 2 mm-hmm. and Uncle Tapolino in Cars 2. So he's got a couple of sequels. Michelle Phillips was Gina. She was one of the mamas and the mamas and the papas. She was briefly married to Dennis Hopper. And she's the mother of China Phillips of Wilson Phillips fame. Someday somebody's going to make him want to turn around and say goodbye. We'll see her again next year opposite Tom Skerritt in Savage Harvest the not-roar movie about a family besieged by lions. <laughs> yeah, that was my pick. <laughs> she was also Abby Malone, mother of Tiffany Amber Theason's Valerie Malone, on Beverly Hills 90210. Olivia Hussey is Elsa. She plays Jess in Black Christmas. She's probably best known as Juliet in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And she appeared as Marit in a Japanese film in 1980 called Day of Resurrection, a.k.a. Virus. We don't cover foreign films typically on this show because there are so many, but this one actually sounds amazing. After a virus devastates the global human population, survivors in Antarctica desperately try to find a cure and save the human race. And it's directed by Kinji Fukusaku, who directed 2000's Battle Royale. So I threw that on my list next year for the 41st anniversary. Okay, I'll watch that with you. Misty Rowe played Duchess. She played Marilyn Monroe in Goodnight Sweet Marilyn and Goodbye Norma Jean. She also played Betty in MacGyver episode The Prometheus Syndrome, which is the one about the arsonist with Jack McGee. Yeah, yeah, that's a crazy episode. Yeah. Victor Buono played Commodore Anastas. He was Edwin Flagg in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Fat Man in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Uh, He's also King Tut on the Adam West Batman. Oh, is he really? Yeah. That's great. So he'd been to that cave. King Tut. Maybe. <laughs> Herbert Lom was Mr. Zebra. We just had him as Yaskov in Hopscotch. We'll see him next in the long-running role of Inspector Dreyfus for Trail of the Pink Panther. He's also Dr. Sam Wyzak in The Dead Zone, and he appeared with Bogart in The Love Lottery. Sybil Danning played Cynthia. She's Saint X-Men from Battle Beyond the Stars. She was Charlotte in The High Cost of Living. She is also Sturba in Howling 2. She also appears in Rob Zombie's Werewolf Women of the SS trailer and his Halloween reboot as a nurse. In 84, she appeared in Chained Heat and Hercules, for which she received a Razzie Award from those assholes over at the Razzies. <laughs> Richard Bakulian played Lieutenant Bombera. He was Loach in Chinatown. He's the voice of Dinky in Fox and the Hound next year. And he also appears in a couple episodes of Baywatch Nights. Jay Robinson played Wolfie, Zinderneuf, he was Mr. Hawkins in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He played Caligula in The Robe and Demetrius and the Gladiators. George Raft was Petey Kane. He played Spats Columbo in Some Like It Hot. He's Jack Strager in Ocean's Eleven. And he acted with Bogart in Invisible Stripes. And he played Bogart's brother in They Drive By Night. He died November 24th of 1980, so just 
a couple months after this film was released. Yvonne DiCarlo played Teresa Anastas. She was Sephora in The Ten Commandments. And she's Lily Munster on The Munsters. Mike Mazurki played Self. I don't know how anyone played Self in this movie. I don't remember who Mike Mazurki was. Yeah. But he plays one of Spat's henchmen in Some Like It Hot. He's also a minor in Mad, 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 Mad World. Uh, he's the gatekeeper from The Alligator earlier this year, the guy that's trying to keep the strangers out of the mayor's <laughs> son's wedding yeah, uh, or daughter's wedding. Totally oblivious to what's happening inside. Yeah. And uh, he also appeared with Bogart in Thank You, Lucky Stars. So they clearly collecting Bogart co-stars yes. for this cast. That makes sense. Henry Wilcoxon played Mr. Chevalier. He played Pentar in Ten Commandments. He was also the bishop in Caddyshack. And he plays uh, Vicar in mrs miniver victor sen young played mr wing that's their the neighbor of the office when they run down to get the envelope out of the trash he's standing behind the building and he says oh the trash truck just left he plays jimmy chan aka son number one in the charlie chan series a lot of it he also played hop sing on bonanza he starred with bogart in across the pacific and the left hand of god and he passed away on november 1st of 1980 so again fairly soon after this film came out the actor who ran this this was sad the actor who ran a small mail order chinese pottery business was creating clayware and curing the items with an oven and died of natural gas poisoning from a gas leak in his home oh no because he was only in his 50s or something in this movie Hmm. joe theisman played jock that's the assistant of mr kane and his club he was originally drafted by the dolphins but transferred to the redskins who he was playing for when this film was released. We are recording between the announcement that the name will officially change and the announcement of the new name. So we're we're in a gray area of not knowing what to call the Redskins right now. Is this what they named the Theisman Trophy after? No. This is what they named the Heisman Trophy after. <laughs> they just spelt it wrong every time. He was also the original host of the American Gladiators in 1989. He plays himself in stuff like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he's also Mac in Cannibal Run 2. Alicia Brevard played Mother. She plays female creature in Bigfoot 1970. <laughs> Excellent. Buck Cartalian played Nicky. He's Julius in Planet of the Apes. He plays Dynamite in Cool Hand Luke. He played a reverend in The Rock. And he plays Frank, a gorilla, in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Philip Baker Hall was Dr. Inman. That's yeah. the guy who officially makes the uh, Humphrey Bogart face. I, I, I thought it was, I almost thought it was Seymour Cassell at first. Yeah. Because they both have that kind of accent and voice. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't, and, and they even have kind of a similar look back in that, in those days. Um, but uh, gotta love Philip Baker yeah, Hall. As soon as I heard his voice, I knew immediately. I was like, oh shit. Is that Jimmy Gator? It was Jimmy Gator from Magnolia. He's also Floyd Gondoli in Boogie Nights. He's Sydney in Heart Eight, which is also I think called Sydney in some markets. I think yeah, it's yeah. AKA. He's Father Calloway in the Amityville remake, and he plays Sheriff Chambers in Gus Van Sant's Psycho, the good one. <laughs> Larry Pennell played George. He's Kimosabi in Bubba Hotep. He's Clark Gable on Quantum Leap, and he plays I don't know how to pronounce this name, Aix, A I X in Metal Storm: The Destruction of Jared Sin. And then our last credit here, we had Robert Osborne as a reporter. He's not in a lot of stuff. He obviously hosted Turner Classic Movies for 20 years. He appears in a Kimmy Schmidt episode uh, as sort of a parody of himself. 
He's also a guard in Spartacus, apparently, and he played a man in Hitchcock Psycho, a.k.a. the bad one. <laughs> and that's everything I had for cast or crew. Yeah, I was just doing a little bit of uh, they appeared together, the collaboration yeah. thing on, on IMDb, and uh, we skipped Horse Borscht. But he uh, he also appeared in a Bogart movie. Oh, did I miss Horst? Yeah. What was he in with Bogart? All Through the Night. Oh, okay. Interesting. What's the actor's name? Uh, the actor's name is... Borscht Horst. Borscht Horst. No. Martin Kloslek. Kloslek? But yeah. Uh, this is an enjoyable film. And... Uh, the yeah. whole The whole cast was great in addition to the, the characters being well written. I feel like... There could have been a better story to it. Yeah. I don't think like the story was very well thought out. And uh, it's unclear why he trusts who he trusts when he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also sloppy when it, the plot needs him to be sloppy. And he's not sloppy mm-hmm. when it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, but it was still yeah. it was still a fun watch. And, and maybe I liked it a lot because... I had super low expectations going in. Well, when I, as soon as it said Melvin Simon at the beginning, I was like, okay, that means that this is a bad idea for a movie, but it could actually be great. Because that's what happened execution. with the last two. I was like, <laughs> no, that's not a movie. And then it was fine. You know, I, It had a great cast and it was a good script. And that's what he's best at is that it's he finding finds these... the, the diamond in the rough and yeah. just throwing some money at it. I feel like Melvin Simon productions are the equivalent of like a blacklist movie now yeah. where it's like, this is a bad idea for a movie. It won't make money, but it's really fun and it's a good read. So let's make it. Yeah. Um, what would you both, because I was thinking about this a lot during the movie, what would you both have thought of this movie had it been made in Bogart's time? Like, With like, just another actor who looked like Bogart at the time? No, no. Like, or with, with Bogart. Like in, in, a, in a real kind of noir-esque, like take out the the. Yeah. the spoofy kind of bogart stuff where but when you just have this kind of simple or simple but complex multiple case i mean it has all the staples of a noir like multiple cases Mm -hmm. that are actually the same case this really punchy dialogue you know some good rock'em sock'em fistfights i I I think this would have been fine yeah i think i would have liked it um i mean maybe not as much as some of the best noirs that i've seen but i would have said it was a fine movie and i think the addition of the extra kind of humorous elements that this concept adds to it made it more enjoyable. Yeah. I like if, if this were an actual Bogart movie, I would say it's a lesser Bogart movie mm-hmm. uh, because it's not that complicated a story and that, and the twists and turns are not shocking because you're not really invested in any of the characters. Mm-hmm. I also think it's weird that so much of the movie that he's just two timing these women and it's not an issue at all. Yeah. That he's just like goes on a date with one girl and then immediately calls the other one and goes on a date with her. And it's like, <laughs> no one's ever addressing this fact that, I mean, clearly really one of them knows. was going to die before the end of the movie. Cause you're like, he's going to end up with one of them. So they both seem nice. <laughs> one of them's going to die. Did we ever figure out why, maybe I'm forgetting why Elsa contacted him in the first place. I mean, I know she wanted help with her father, but why him? Just because she literally opened the newspaper and was like, people are harassing my dad. I'm going to call a private eye. Here's the first private eye ad that I found. Mm. Which is the same way that people like, that's why SEO is so important. If you're the first name (laughs) on the list, Mm -hmm. they're just going to call you because no one bothers to check into anyone's references anymore. That's why there's so many like triple A. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You just show up at the place and you're like, well, 
I didn't check uh I didn't check Yelp, so I don't know why you look like Humphrey Bogart <laughs> and that your office didn't exist yesterday. So uh can you protect my dad? To be fair, I don't know why he looks like Humphrey Bogart either. But he just likes him, I guess. And and, and that was like another thing too, because a lot of people like stop and look at him and I get some of the older people doing that, but this is still yeah. like 40, 30, 40 years later, I feel, like as far as Bogart's career. Yeah. Because um, there's a part where he's going up the stairs to his place and there's a bunch of like 20-something girls coming down. Yeah. Like, what is that? Oh, my gosh. He looks just like Bogart. And it's like, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, because the guy even, the guy who gets in the car accident says he's been dead for 20 years. Yeah. And so it's- Because he died fairly young. He had cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought I just thought it was interesting uh, that so many of the people who I feel shouldn't recognize him, or maybe just through osmosis, kind of recognize him, but enough to do a double take. Like yeah. I don't, I'm not sure if I would, mm-hmm. if I would. Yeah. Yeah. Even now, I feel like, like I think Bogart, I th- I think his face it's recognizable, but if I saw this guy in person, I would just be like, oh, it's just my mind playing tricks on me. Mm-hmm. But then that always happens. Like, you know, when some famous celebrity dies and you're like, oh, man, I just saw him uh, walking down the sidewalk the other day. And you're like, oh, no, he died. So that, that couldn't have been him. And you just yeah. write it off immediately. Like, that's for sure not him. So if you know that Bogart died 20 years ago, you're not going to have that in your head as a, is that guy Bogart? <laughs> Every time yeah. you see him. It's not a taxi cab confession situation. <laughs> no. But, yeah, this is a definite up for me. Oh, yeah. I give it an up. Uh, I give it an up. Uh, I, I think that that I might be cautious about who I recommend this to. Sure. Um, I, but I do, I would like think that this might even pass my, my, my father test where, <laughs> where I was like, I think my dad might, might enjoy this a little bit to, to an extent. Sure. Um, where's this going on our lists, Jess? Um, so right now there seems to be this string of movies that, you know, I would definitely watch anytime if you brought it up. I'd be like, yeah, I'm down to watch that. And it's right at the bottom of that list, which is 54th for the year. I have him below Battle Beyond the Stars and above Najinsky. Okay. Richard? Uh, I have this at number 49, uh, just below Die Laughing and just above Hide in Plain Sight. Okay. Um, I have it lower than you guys. It's in 68th for me. But I think I like more of my list than you yeah, guys you do. do. <laughs> um, but I have it just under Xanadu and just above Bronco Billy. Well, mine's really close to uh, Xanadu as well. Yeah, and for me, Xanadu is right under Battle Beyond the Stars, which is right where you have it. And so. I actually had it in the 60s right around Bronco Billy when I first placed it. And then we talked about it, and I'm like, no, nah, I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. And I bumped it up. <laughs> yep. It's good stuff. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Oh God, Book 2 which IMDb describes like so. God asks a young girl to spread his word and influence with a slogan. We leave you now with the trailer for Oh God, Book 2. (laughs) 
God was having a little trouble with the people of Earth. Every time I look down there, it gets worse. He needed a way to get a message to them. They don't believe in me as much as they should these days. And the only one listening... And a little child shall lead them. ...was a little girl named Tracy. Sometimes you just have to believe in things you can't see. Now, this public relations nightmare... She's got the whole place in an uproar. She's disrupted the entire school. ...is in the hands of a child. Let's go home. We'll thank God tomorrow. What did you say? I said, we'll thank God tomorrow. And it looks like the Almighty One is about to make a comeback. Thank God, that's a terrific slogan. I really like it. I think you're a loony. George Burns, David Burney, Howard Duff, Conrad Janis, Suzanne Plachette, and introducing Luann as Tracy. Have you ever felt like you might be dreaming, even though you knew you were awake? Yeah, sure, it happens to everybody. In a film that'll make you think God, whether you like it or not. Fine. Oh God, book two. Thank God. I like that one too, but let's go and thank God.